Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And let's talk about the title of this episode to kick things off, Caroline. Sure. Oprah wasn't built in a day. No, no. This woman worked her way up through failure, through sexual harassment, through people being generally just a jerk and not understanding her true and amazing skill set to be the amazing guardian angel that I talk about in therapy and that my therapist raises an eyebrow at me. But I'm like, no, sometimes I pray to Oprah. I don't see anything wrong with that. No, I'm a secular American, and I can praise Oprah. Oh, I am just imagining a little Oprah shrine that you have in your house that I really hope exists. If it doesn't, just don't even tell me right now. <laughs> Let me bask in my in my fantasy. Um. Well, actually, uh, I do, and it's in uh, it's in a bread box, and I just open the bread box, and there's my Oprah shrine. And is she saying, "I love bread"? Yep. Oh. Wonderful. It's like a pop-up book, but it's a pop-up bread box. Does her face pop out of it smiling? Mm-hmm. Live your best life. I love bread. <laughs> oh, love Oprah. Um, and funnily enough, when she got her second on-air job that we're going to talk about more in just a second, the promos for her debut were, and I, and I kid you not, listeners, on Buses and billboards. I think they even had some on-air spots asking, what is an Oprah? What is Oprah? And they had no idea the question they were asking and the answer it would become. I know. A, a mega success. An inspiration. A book club maven. A car giving away f- fantastic human. A Michelle Obama friend. Yeah. Ugh. Hello. I mean, uh, no shade to Gail, Gail King, of course, but <laughs> Flotus. I mean, what a queen. What a queen. Um, also, though, in the spirit of transparency, mm-hmm. we have to admit that, unfortunately, we are not the first ones to come up with this phrasing of Oprah wasn't built in a day. You, I think, first saw it on a T-shirt, right? Yeah. Um, I am currently, as of this recording awaiting the arrival today in the mail of my Oprah wasn't built in a day t-shirt from the company Tees in the Trap. And I recommend you all go over there, look at their amazing t-shirts, mugs, uh, tote bags, some, they have just, you know, some pretty cool swag. And, uh, I saw the Oprah shirt and basically was like, I think I waited a day because I was like, ugh. Should I spend more money on yet another T-shirt? And then 24 hours later, I was like, I was already entering my credit card information. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you, T's in the trap. And thank you, Oprah. Really, you know. Thank you, Oprah. And we're talking about Oprah to kick off this episode on failure, <laughs> which which might seem uh, like an odd choice because is there really more of a success than Oprah? I contend nay, <laughs> because as she talks about, she had to go through uh, one in particular major flop that was ultimately a stepping stone on her way to success. And this is something that we hear about a lot from really successful and really innovative people. Um, and for instance, the 
podcast episode that came out right before this one talks all about women and inventing and patenting. And I have a feeling that a lot of the folks we talk about in that episode can definitely relate to the importance of failure. And I got to say, personally, I am only now in my early 30s starting to get more comfortable with the prospect of failure and also processing my own failures and not just putting on my blinders Mm -hmm. and trying to moonwalk away from them. Yeah, I got to say, first of all, I've never seen you moonwalk, so we'll talk about that later. You don't want to see it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just fall over backwards. It's more like just an awkward backward gallop. Yeah. (laughs) Mine's more of an ashamed shuffle. The shame shuffle. Do the shame shuffle. (laughs) The shuffle of shame. Yeah. Um, I have to say... For me, this discussion today that we will deep dive into is a continuation of our perfectionism episode, uh, which I know, based on your many, many letters that you wonderful people sent us, really resonated with you in the discussion of tripping yourself up, being afraid of failing, being so smart and so accomplished and so skilled, whether it's, you know, writing or acting or art or whatever, sports, who knows, but not allowing yourself to go the distance because you're so afraid of mucking it all up. And so that's sort of going to be the theme that runs through this conversation, too, And similarly to our perfectionism episode, we're also, of course, going to discuss the gendered aspects of this. And I have to say, as long as I've been doing Stuff Mom Never Told You and as long as I've been uh, a female human, a lot of the points that we will address in this episode still broke my brain in terms of, of thinking about my aversion to failure. So I can't wait to dive into some of this stuff with you. You and me both talking about therapists, like <laughs> this is a huge issue for me. And something that I, I, I hope I'm beginning to get, uh, get better with. Well, yeah. I mean, I, for instance, I make the joke sometimes of like, you know, I'm not one of those try, try again people. But I had no idea how gendered that statement is. No idea. I just thought that I was being silly and sarcastic and self-deprecating. But it turns out that there's a little more to it. Feminine gendered, you mean. Okay, okay. Well, as we mentioned, like there is a big conversation, especially in creative fields, around the importance of failure. You hear it a lot, too, in Silicon Valley and in science. Um, iterate, iterate, iterate is uh, something that you will probably hear um, in labs and startup offices and the like. And as Gideon Lickfield put it so perfectly over at Quartz, failure is in fashion. Oh, yeah. Fail fast is Silicon Valley's motto, and this reminds me of uh, one bit in Lean In where Sheryl Sandberg talks about uh, a poster that's up in Facebook and probably many other Silicon Valley offices that says, uh, better done than perfect. Just like get over the idea of needing to achieve perfection, like just execute it and then learn from it, um, which to me makes me clutch my pearls a little bit and say, <laughs> but, 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 but. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I mean, there's just getting it done. And then there's that fear that, well, if I'm failing, I'm not doing. Whereas a lot of people would argue, no, failing is still doing. You're just on to the next thing. Right. And it's the most important thing in a lot of ways that you can do, at least according to a lot of successful people. Um, and it is refreshing to hear. You know, it's definitely gotten stuck in my head. If you are a fan of TED Talks at all, you probably heard a lot about this, too. But the question that we're really going to dive into from there is whether that is easier said than done for women and girls, because like you mentioned, Caroline, there is a lot of gendering that goes along with this. There's a lot of uh, socialization that girls experience that might make us more risk averse or at least feel like we should be more risk averse. Um, but it's not to say that some women have not thrived in the face of failure. Like there, <laughs> I feel like there is this, like the one listicle that is, circulates around the internet and all sorts of Pinterest infographics of successful people who failed first and the women's names that you always see on it are J.K. Rowling because of course she was rejected from more than a dozen publishers before Harry Potter sold. Ariana Huffington likes to talk about how her second book was rejected 36 times. Although I would contend that if it's your second book, you've already had your first book. Like, I mean, you're already successful, <laughs> but that will, but we'll get to that in a second too. Yeah. And then you have a designer, Vera Wang, who pivoted from figure skating to fashion because figure skate, I think she might not have made the cut for the Olympics. Back in the day? Yeah, something like that. At some point, she hit her ceiling, um, and hopefully it was not due to anything related to Tanya Harding. Well, thank God she pivoted, because now my mother has so much to talk about when she looks at magazines and tells me what kind of wedding dress she's going to buy me. Vera Wang? Oh, I will get you that Vera Wang dress, and I'm like, I've literally never said anything about a wedding dress to you, but thanks. So thank you, Vera Wang. I'm glad you were successful in your second career. But also, Caroline, the, the question that I really got stuck on is what would the world, what would our lives be like if Beyonce had given up after girls' time lost on Star Search? I know. It's at the beginning of Flawless, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they lost a skeleton crew, which have you heard of skeleton crew, ladies and gentlemen? Well, probably yes, because you've heard Flawless. But other than that, no. Um, but she and Kelly Rowland were both in girls time. And, you know, if if that had been it for Bay, where would we be? Where would we be? And then, of course, there's Oprah. I mean, we we would have a world without Beyonce if if she didn't try try again, and we would also have a world where we did not know the answer to what is an Oprah. <laughs> I know, and and just like so many amazingly successful people, Oprah, oh, she herself does have a failure quote. She says, "There's no such thing as failure. Failure is just life trying to move us in another direction." And she should know, because as we. Made very clear at the top of the podcast, she overcame a lot. In 1976, 22-year-old Oprah jumps in her red cutlass and drives from Nashville, Tennessee to Baltimore to be the co-anchor on the WJZ nightly newscast with this guy, Jerry Turner, who is basically considered like the king 
of local newscasting. Yeah, he was like, Jerry Turner sounds like a real life Ron Burgundy. Yeah, he was a terrible human is what it sounds like. And he hated Oprah and he hated sharing the spotlight with this new green, uh, well, woman of color. Not to confuse anyone. Um, but yeah, he just, he didn't want to share the spotlight and he made things really difficult for her. And Oprah ended up getting canned after just more than seven months, uh, on April 1st, 1977. And she was like, is this a April Fool's joke? Right. Because the way the station manager posed it to her was classic office space style of, you're not fired. We're, promoting you laterally to instead do these things that are much less prestigious. Right. (laughs) She was the person who would come on during the break, like in the Today Show, the local anchor who like gives you the news at the top of the hour, the local news. So basically she was completely invisible. Right. And she, by her own admission, is not a good newscaster. No. And okay, hello. This is what I identified with so much. When she admits, like, I'm not a great traditional journalist. I am something else. I'm, my skill set lies elsewhere. I want to, she's an Oprah. I want to help the people that I talk to. Um, and, you know, fast forward a couple years and, and that's what she's doing. She's running the Oprah show after a couple more stops, but she's running the Oprah show and she's helping people. And like that to me resonates because it's like, ah, Just because you failed at one thing doesn't mean that there's not another door that's going to open for you. Yeah. And speaking about that very difficult time when she was in Baltimore, which is also where she ended up meeting and befriending Gail King, who I want to say might have been also working at WJZ. Um, Jay-Z, WJZ, I'm just imagining it's Jay-Z and Beyonce's uh, network, although, of course, they'd never demote Oprah. <laughs> but Oprah later said, kind of reflecting back on that period, quote, I had no idea what I was in for or that this was going to be the greatest growing period of my adult life. It shook me to my very core, and I didn't even know at the time that I was being shaken. And this is coming from a woman who, even before she got to Nashville, had already survived a lifetime's worth of abuse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like ended up uh, moving out of her parents' home and thrived in school and made her way, you know, into the big world and is immediately kind of knocked down. But she gets right back up again. And now I'm kind of quoting a Chumbawamba song and I'm not very happy about it. (laughs) I'm sure there was a whiskey drink involved. Probably. Probably a lot. Hopefully her and Gail just throw throwing a few back. And I'm sure that part of what they were talking about was the humiliation that they faced from not only people like a Jerry Turner, um, but also just the sexual harassment that they had to deal with. Oprah was even forced to babysit Oprah. Being forced to babysit for higher ups at the studio like that. That just doesn't like what a horrific way to try to put someone in her place. Oh, yeah. To make her babysit for you. That's like it's so insulting. Abuse of power much. Um, But she doesn't leave WJZ at that point. 
in August 1978, she ends up co-hosting this new segment, People Are Talking, with Richard Shear, who is delighted to co-anchor with Oprah. It's much more her style of more of a talk show than hard news reporting. Um, And even though the Baltimore Sun television critic at the time initially wrote it off, um, saying that there was nothing much worth hearing or seeing, uh, jokes on you, critic, because it ended up being successful and it led to her move to Chicago, where she ended up starting, of course, the Oprah Winfrey show. And the rest is history. Yeah. Look at how successful she has been doing the thing that she is so good at. Being the helper, being that Oprah guardian angel and just talking to people and listening to people. It's gives me chills. Well, and it makes sense, too, that in that Harvard commencement speech, she describes failure as moving you in another direction because it took her failing in in that sense to really learn, oh, you know what, I'm I'm so not into reporting the news. That yeah. is not my strong suit. But I can do other things. Exactly. And so she is a fabulous illustration of how failure is not necessarily failure. That you can pivot and turn in a different direction and find what works for you. But now we have to ask when we talk about failure, and especially when we hear about failure today in the more like TED talky sense of the word of embrace failure, run toward failure, that's what you're going to need to succeed. Like, what exactly do we mean when we are talking about failure? Because also on those types of listicles with J.K. Rowling and Oprah, these people's failures led up to major successes. But the failure that terrifies me is just the fail- the banal failure of just really, really just failing at life. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound so banal. Failing failing at life. What did you fail? I don't know. I failed a test. Just what did Kristen fail at? Life. 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 Top, down, sideways, all of it. <laughs> yeah. All of the little aspects of life that make up a day. There's so much potential for for messing all of that up. <laughs> yeah. I I share I share your fear. And it's funny because it's those little things that have the potential to scare you but that you also might not view in yourself as like, oh, well these just aren't important enough. It's not like when I tripped and fell and dropped my lunch and so I failed at eating lunch or something. Like that doesn't add up to any great success. And so over at Scientific American, you have Miriam Zeringham, who tried to launch this thing called Science Confessionals with the motivation of like, hey, there's a lot of failure and try, try again in science. You know, you do experiments, they fail, you move on to the next thing. Um, and so she's like, let's empower ourselves and each other by sharing our failures and, and making them visible. You're not alone. We all make mistakes or whatever. But nobody shared. Right. And no one. Well, I think she got a few a few entries here and there. And even though it was anonymous, the feedback she heard from a fellow scientists who were hesitant to share was that their failures weren't sexy enough, essentially. Like, oh, yeah, I my hypothesis was just completely bunk. It wasn't that, well, I was wrong on this, but I pulled a Thomas Edison and right. ended up inventing a light bulb. So... <laughs> Right. There are so many different types of failures. And Stuart Firestein, who wrote Failure, Why Science is So Successful, talks about 
good failures. And he refers to them as Stein failures because Gertrude Stein has this quote of a real failure does not need an excuse. It is an end in itself. And so he sort of explores like, what does that mean for a failure to be an end in itself? And so through his exploration of what could Gertrude Stein possibly mean, he writes that good failures are those that leave a wake of interesting stuff behind. Ideas, questions, paradoxes, enigmas, contradictions. So not necessarily, um, you know, having your mistake turn into a massive, massively successful scientific innovation, but even opening the door to more questions could be seen as a good failure. Right. Because as Stein is talking about just quitting and stopping the whole thing altogether, that's your failure, not stumbling perhaps on or meandering on your way to getting to wherever it is you want to go. Um, and the concept of grit and the importance of grit in order to Process that failure and keep moving and work toward a good failure, as Firestein um, terms it, is something that was very scientific zeitgeisty not too long ago with the publication of Angela Duckworth's Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance, in which she talks about how resilience and passion are the key ingredients of this thing called grit. And while, of course, it takes more than grit to achieve success, um, that those are are really the core elements that help us keep trying, you know, help us do the Thomas Edison thing of finding 10,000 ways to fail before you get to the right thing. Well, what's really fascinating is to look at what failure is doing in our brains, how we perceive it, what's happening to our brains when we perceive failure. This is something that Jonah Lair wrote about over at Wired. Which is kind of ironic now, considering the turn his journalistic career has taken. Well, wherever he got this information from, it's very fascinating. Um, he points to the anterior cingulate cortex, which is a collar of tissue located in the center of the brain. And it's associated with the perception of errors and contradictions. And he points out that neuroscientists often refer to it as the OS word circuit. It's the thing that lights up basically when we see something that we know is wrong, is a mistake. We recognize it as such. So while we have that anterior cingulate cortex that is alerting us to, hey, this is an error, this is a mistake. Um, I wonder if I have a hyperactive dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which I'm sure is on the minds of most modern women these days, uh, because as Lair describes, this is the area of the brain. It's one of the last areas of our brain, in fact, to develop in young adults. And it, as Lair puts it, suppresses unwanted representation. So it's kind of like a delete key. It's a thing of like, oh, let's just look over there. You know what? Uh, I didn't fail because maybe that just never happened. I feel like that it's sort of the self-delusion center <laughs> of our brain. And that is the thing to me that, that kind of kicks up in my past failure processing of, you know, we're just, you know, we're not just, we're just going to pretend like it didn't happen. Just like, nope, just repress it. Which is, which is a definite coping mechanism, but it's not a good way to 
learn from our failures and learn from our mistakes. Right. And there's even a term for this called hedonic editing, which is um, essentially lying to yourself. (laughs) Hedonic editing sounds like what I do on a Thursday night when I'm trying to edit an article. (laughs) I've just got like plates of cake and cookies and all sorts of booze and wine all over the place. I want to come edit with you. (laughs) Yeah, sounds magical. A real bacchanal. Um, but this also prevents us from learning. You know, um, if we are too concerned about really protecting our own self-perception to ourself, if that makes sense, um, we're not going to have productive failure. And this stuff really starts from childhood, these kinds of patterns and they're very recognizable, too, oh, yeah. <laughs> when you learn about them. And this is coming from UC Berkeley, which broke down four major ways that children, regardless of gender, children tend to process failure, starting with the success-oriented kids. These are the kids with grit. They are intrinsically motivated. They're passionate. They process failure with what uh, Carol Dweck terms a growth mindset of, you know what, this is just one step along the way. Yeah, and growth mindset essentially acknowledges that, you know, who knows what amazing things will happen when I work hard, practice, you know, allow passion to drive me. It's something, it's where you basically acknowledge, like, Things are going to change. I might mess up, but I'm going to learn from it. Yeah, we're all works in progress. It's a really great place to be. And maybe one day I can grow up and and have a growth mindset as well. Um, The second type of failure processing is in the overstrivers and the closet achievers. These kids avoid failure by succeeding, which sounds like, okay, that's great. But the thing is, they're working really, really, really hard in the background to get there, basically. So they might say like, oh, I don't have time to study for this test. I might, you know, I might do really badly on this test. And then they end up studying all night and they ace it. And that just serves to reinforce like you're not good enough. You had to study all night in order to succeed to other people. They're just like, oh, you must be really smart. Um, And then, of course, there's the failure avoiding which, no, it doesn't sound familiar. Why do you ask? Uh, these are the kids who say, you know what? I'm just going to not even worry about succeeding. Um, I don't want my failure to be put on display. And so with this type of failure processing, you get a lot of that procrastination, uh, maybe just not participating at all or opting to pursue tasks that are nearly impossible because that's safer, right? Because if it's nearly impossible, if you fail, it's not that much of a fall. Yeah, I am totally a blend of an overstriver mm-hmm. and a failure avoider. Me too. See, I wrote me and drew <laughs> arrows to two and three. Maybe that's why we get along so well. <laughs> We're just constantly worried. Exactly. Uh, but it's better to worry, you know, in someone's company, right? Sure. You know? Yeah. Uh, and then finally, though, we have the failure accepting kids. And that sounds positive. However, it's not so much because they internalize their failure. Uh, failure accepting kids and adults, let's be honest, they process failure as a direct reflection of their work. And 
when they achieve a success, whether it's, say, getting a part in a play or making a good grade, they feel like it's a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So for the play, it's like, well, you know, I was the only one who tried out for that role. Or if it's an A, it's like, well, the teacher graded on a curve. Yeah, it's just a total fluke. And um, the UC Berkeley folks wrote that with kids in this group, this fourth group, they prefer non-academic avenues like sports or art. And my thinking about this was like, well, sports, God, no, I avoid competition and hate sports because I don't want to mess up or look stupid. But what they were saying hues closer to it's not necessarily like I doubt myself in academics, so I'm going to go out for the soccer team. It's more like, what are you just naturally good at? Like, I was afraid of failing at athletic stuff. So I was much more the art kid or the writing kid because that stuff just came more naturally to me. So when I excelled at it, I was like, oh, well, yeah, it's fine. It's not a big deal. So what does gender have to do with all of this? Answer in all caps, <laughs> a lot. And we're going to get into all of that when we come right back from a quick break. As Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners know, some girls like to play with dolls, some like to play sports, and some like to do both. But one thing all girls have in common is that once they reach the age of nine, their self-esteem and confidence begin to drop, research has found. They become less likely to try, to take risks, to expose their vulnerability. So it's up to us to make sure they keep nurturing their passions, whatever they may be. Lego Play provides a great opportunity for kids to build, rebuild, to create and discover. There are no right answers. What she builds with Lego bricks is right. Always. Lego has something for every girl to build of all ages based on her interest, whether it's a Minecraft, a friend's set, or simply building with bricks you have at home. So let's help girls break free from insecurity and embrace the process of growth and discovery with all its highs and lows. And remember that we are all a work in progress. Lego wants kids everywhere to keep exploring, creating, discovering, and building their world brick by brick, just like Caroline and I do here on Stuff Mom Never Told You. And you can learn more all about how Lego is helping kids and parents do that over at Pinterest.com slash Lego. So the bottom line is, from early childhood, Girls are socialized to avoid risk-taking, and there is a ton of research to back this up. And we should mention, too, like this is a very Western-centric body of research, and I would be curious to see more of a cross-cultural take on it. But if we are looking at girls um, here in the United States and in the West more broadly, chances are parents are going to... Uh, caution their daughters to be careful more than they are going to caution their sons. Yeah, it's called the skin knee effect. This is something we've talked about several times on the podcast before of like letting the boy run off and figure things out for himself. And if that involves falling down, well, he'll learn from it and he won't do it again next time if it hurt him. Whereas they tend to be parents tend to be a little more careful with their girls. They warn them about dangers more often, tell them not to climb to the highest rope or not climb to the highest part of the playground in case they fall rather than letting their little princess 
figure things out for herself. A oh, little princess. Not that there's hashtag not all princesses. I'm not projecting that. I'm just saying that <laughs> the parents who might be considering their girl to be a delicate princess. Well, and my parents didn't consider me and my sisters delicate princesses, but but I do think that we were similarly like more cautioned than our brothers hmm. to just not to hurt ourselves. And I still have a major fear of hurting myself. Um, I it's part of why I don't like heights a lot. Um, <laughs> and uh, there were a number of times during my childhood when uh, if I hurt myself, I would not try try again. That is why, friends, I am not a skateboarder. <laughs> no, I and as, uh, what's funny is I hurt myself so much as a child. And I'm scared to hurt myself. Do you know how scared I am of knives? It takes me forever to chop things for dinner. Really? Yeah. Um, but for a sense of the degree to which parents tend to do this, probably subconsciously, I don't think that parents are setting out to soften their girls. Um, two separate studies found that parents socialize toddler girls three times more than boys toward avoiding injury. And they're four times likelier to urge girls to be careful, even though boys have much higher rates of unintentional injury, probably because <laughs> they haven't been so conditioned to not uh, get on tall things on top above pea gravel and such. <laughs> um, and. When we look more at academia and hobbies and interests, something that jumped out to me is this question of whether this even affects our intrinsic motivation as girls, if it even kind of puts some reins on that. Because research also finds that girls are likelier to have their autonomy and motivation threatened. And I have a feeling that that likely comes across in examples such as uh, a teacher saying, oh, you know, you don't want to go out there and get dirty with the boys. Oh, well, do you really want to do that? I don't I don't think other other little girls are are doing that, you know, just kind Mm -hmm. of constantly being questioned if their interest uh, lies outside of our acceptable um, our acceptable behavior for little girls. Yeah. And we read that. It tends to be true that boys' efforts, regardless of the outcome, are praised more than girls' efforts. And so a way to counterbalance some of this gender division is to praise girls' efforts just as much, even if they fall down, even if they fail. And this kind of approach can really help foster that growth mindset instead of the fixed mindset. And, I mean, I had to have some... Real, real talk with myself, uh, reading about the fixed mindset. It's basically the viewpoint that your character, intelligence, and creativity are static. They don't change. They're inherent. Oh, little Caroline, you grew up and you were good at writing and art. Well, that's just because that was inherent, not because you worked at it, because you liked it, you know? Um, and it's the view that basically... Your success is just an affirmation of that inherent skill or intelligence that you assume you just lucked out with. And you avoid failure in order to maintain that sense of being smart and skilled. Right, because this also speaks to our approach to 
our weaknesses. So for me, one thing that kept coming to mind while uh, going over all of this research was how difficult ninth grade geometry was for me. It was my first year outside of homeschool, for starters. And the teacher I had was phenomenal, but he was really, really tough. And there were things because of homeschooling that I had to play some catch up on really quickly. And I felt so like such a massive failure anytime I got anywhere just like barely below an A because I had a very fixed mindset about it of, well, you know what? I'm just not good at math and I'm never going to be good at math. And it turns out that with more of a growth mindset, the truth of the matter is you can get better. And in fact, I did end up getting all A's in, in all of my math classes Aww. in high school. Hashtag humble brag. Um, <laughs> and I mentioned that example because research has found that that's this growth mindset effect has been strong enough that women in tough calculus classes who come at it with that growth mindset stick it out and fare better compared to women with the fixed mindset. And that's controlling for the group's respective mathematics abilities. So, I mean, it's I don't want to say like, if you just think hard enough, then suddenly you will be, you know, a, a calculus star. Obviously, it takes work. But our mentality also has a major impact on our performance and our resilience and those things that it takes to process and push through stumbling blocks or outright failures. Yeah. And this ties back to a lot of stuff that we talked about when it came to, well, A, anytime we've ever talked about women in the workplace, but also our imposter syndrome episode and conversations, because as you've probably read and heard multiple times, women tend to wait to apply for a job or a promotion until they feel 100% qualified. And I mean, even if we remove the research and look just anecdotally, like how many female friends and colleagues have I heard say this? Like, I didn't feel totally um, prepared for that job description, so I just didn't apply. When like, oh, my God, but it's so much more in line with your interest or it offers so much more money. Compared to dudes who tend to, according to the research, apply for a job when they are 60 percent qualified. Yeah. And they often get the jobs and promotions with the idea of like, well, I'm going to learn on the job. I'm going to, you know, get acclimated to this new environment on the job. I don't need to be 100 percent literally born for this job. And that starts well before we even get into the workplace. Uh, just generally speaking, girls are likelier to give up if we feel like we aren't going to ace something. And I can relate to that. You know, there's still that fear of it's not it's like we conflate not being perfect with that being failure, which is oh such a such a dangerous mindset. And I just say that because I I've lived in it for a good part of my life. Um and that even applies to women who are smart enough to get into Harvard. So an economist, Claudia Golden, was teaching at Harvard, and she was really mystified as to why there was this three-to-one ratio of guys to girls in her econ majors, the ones who made it through the majors, because in the intro class, there it was closer to 50-50. So she did some research on her classrooms and found 
that female students who earned just below an A, not even failing the class, just below an A in an introductory econ course, those women were half as likely to complete the econ major compared to the guys who were making Bs who were just as likely to continue on with their major. That's crazy. I'm so glad I got a C in science in high school. <laughs> and I, st- I still liked chemistry. I just wasn't any good at it. Well, but you certainly weren't going to be a chemistry major. No. You know, I mean, that's the thing where it's like the prospect of failure stymieing your potential passion for chemistry, say. Yeah. No, I was definitely not cut out for chem. Um, and, you know, again, going back to our um, imposter syndrome conversations from the past, women are more likely to internalize their perceived failures or or stumbles, whereas men are generally more likely to say, well, that was a hard test or that was a hard professor or something along those lines. And this also relates to conversations we've had around the stereotype threat and uh, this phenomenon that occurs particularly in science, technology, engineering and math courses, whether we're talking about college or down to like uh, elementary, middle and high school, where if you walk into a classroom having internalized the stereotype that you, whatever your identity is, is just not good at whatever this subject is, regardless of your actual aptitude, you perform worse. You know, it's kind of these self-fulfilling prophecies. But the thing is, though, (laughs) with all of these like dismal study findings that are very broad brush, the takeaway starts to seem like, well, gosh, girls are just (laughs) kind of pathetic. But here's the thing. There are layers to this, because even when you take all of the risks necessary and all experience all of the disappointments necessary to reach that C-suite, when you become Marissa Meyer, say, or a Mary Barra over at GM, that does not guarantee that you are home free because of something called the glass cliff. And this is where stuff really starts to get twisted and why perhaps our fear of failure does seem to be so ingrained in women. So the glass cliff is this term that was coined by Michelle Ryan and Alex Haslam over at the University of Exeter to basically describe how uh, successful women get to this certain point and are elevated to these positions uh where they're kind of set up to fail. Yeah, I had read about this concept. I had not heard the term the glass cliff, but you can kind of imagine it being exactly what it sounds like. So many sharp edges. So many sharp edges. I just picture like slipperiness, which I tend to slip and and trip very easily anyway. So put me on a glass cliff and it's just a nightmare. Not that I'm trying to put myself on the same level as a Marissa Meyer, but basically here's what it breaks down to. Um, maybe a company isn't doing well, it's failing, it's going bankrupt or whatever. And it has been traditionally led by a man. Uh, well, let's put in a woman or a person of color, basically someone who's not the white man who's historically led this company and see if this person can do better. But the thing is, the person is now helming 
a sinking ship and gets blamed for the incompetency that most likely preceded them. Right. It's like, you know, for instance, President Obama coming into the White House and inheriting a giant mess that he is often just blamed for, yeah. even though it's <laughs> it's a situation um, that was set up, you know, before he even got there. And this bears out in studies as well, which really show our unconscious biases. So some research that was reported on in the Harvard Business Review found that if you have a fictional company that's thriving and it's being led by either a woman or a man, doesn't really matter, the students aren't compelled to make any leadership change. Why would you? This, the company's thriving. That's totally fine. If Status the, quo. Yeah. If the woman's running a company and it's doing well, totally cool. And they also, though, perceived stereotypically male leadership traits in this thrive scenario as being more valuable, things like competitiveness and decisiveness. So that's not really news. But if you flip the script and this fictional company is suddenly in crisis – that's when we prefer stereotypically female strengths like communication and our ability to encourage others to step into a leadership role. So <laughs> it's it's funny to see how um, we are we want women in a crisis, basically. Yeah. Women, people of color, someone who doesn't look like that traditional boss. But then we use what in some cases is an inevitable failure of a company or a department to highlight what we perceive as like an assumed lack of what success or lack of um, that women aren't good leaders. Yeah. Look at her. Why we sh- why should we put another woman in the CEO chair if. They keep failing. Well, and she's also, especially if you are at a level of, say, Mary Barra at uh, General Motors or Marissa Meyer at Yahoo, you are going to receive so much more scrutiny, too, just by virtue of your gender, since you are replacing the dude. You know, it's like, oh, well, what, what, what's the woman going to do in this scenario? And <laughs> this is one penalty that some Yale research has uncovered for people in what are called gender incongruent fields. So say a female mechanic or a male nurse, people in jobs that we normally wouldn't expect them to be in. Those folks are judged more harshly and less competent when they make mistakes compared to their gender congruent colleagues. So you go to a woman mechanic and uh, she screws up your car. You're going to think that she's far more incompetent than and probably attribute some of that to her gender than if you took your car to a male mechanic. And, oh, well, of course, you know, he, he just screwed up the car because not all mechanics are great. Hashtag not all mechanics. I mean, <laughs> it goes back to inherent bias of like, see, I knew it. A woman mechanic, of course she screwed it up. Or a male nurse, of course he's not as sensitive and attentive to detail. And I mean, these things are nonsense, but we just have all of this stuff literally and figuratively in our brains that we are working with. And to add a whole other layer to this, which I was not expecting going into this research on failure, is kind of adding some nuance to this whole thing of you know, women and the so-called confidence gap and how, 
you know, girls just need to kind of bootstrap, buck up, get confident, raise your hands, get passionate, etc. Take those risks. Fail more often. Okay. But that is harder to do when you are not a white dude. <laughs> like this whole Silicon Valley, particularly the Silicon Valley ethos of fail fast, fail hard. I would argue and other people would argue is a product of white male privilege. And wow, do I sound like a feminist or what? Um, because, I mean, think about Steve Jobs or Steve Jorbs, as I like to, to call him for really no good reason. Um, he's kind of the, the paragon of, you know, the, the gospel of failure, saying things along the lines of you got to be willing to fail. If you're afraid of failing, you won't get very far. And that's super true, you know, and, and it's so true, in fact, that there's a whole lexicon of buzzwords that you'll now hear um, in offices, especially in the startup world, where you want to have a soft landing. That's failing gently without any career harm. Sounds really comforting. It really does. Yeah. I would like a mattress that can give me a soft landing. You want to... Fail harder, fail faster. There's even a fail con. What is that? I believe it's like a it's a technology conference, you know, celebrating like inform innovation and all of the failure that it takes to do that. Oh. And then you also have this concept of failing upward. And this is this is a failure that's totally not failure at all. Failing upward means failing with an immediate career upside. And I just wonder how realistic that is for a lot of women and people of color. How do you fail? How do you reliably fail up? Yeah. And part of this failure conversation that's like or like an aspect to failure that's taken for granted is like, oh, well, you're going to fail, but, you know, keep going. Well, what if you don't have the money or what if you don't have the people believing in you? The experience, uh, basically what I'm trying to get at is like, what if you're not already a white guy with a lot of money and a really broad, strong network of of colleagues who will support you? What if you're a first timer into this realm? Whatever it is, maybe it's tech, maybe it's writing a book, maybe it's whatever. But um, one aspect, again, like you, I was really surprised to read about, and I shouldn't have been, again, with all that we've ever talked about on this podcast. But I, I was like, of course, of course, the failure conversation is one of privilege. Right. I mean, Jessica Leahy, who wrote a book called The Gift of Failure um, that was really popular. I want to say it came out in 2014. She talked to The New York Times about how white men with connections to capital are the best equipped to fail because the stakes are the lowest for them, really. Um, in the same article, uh, Camille Fournier, who is an engineer and uh, the former CTO of Rent the Runway, talked about how celebrating failure is, quote, an inherently privileged concept. And as I started reading that article, like light bulbs just started going yeah. off, like you said, of, oh, oh, of course, that's why. And it also explained to me why I have always had a little bit of a side eye for the whole um, digital media fail culture of like, I get it in my head, but something there's something just slightly 
off well, it's like, about it's like it. weirdly fetishized and like right. i get i get normalizing failure that's a positive thing normalizing failure we're learning all gonna, from it yes yes that's all positive and i encourage that in others and myself but the whole like tech bro love for failure like not everybody has the luxury of getting up again you know and if that is in fact the path to innovation which it really is then the question we should be asking is how can we make it safer for people to fail regardless of their identity that they are bringing into this space and of course that's connected to all sorts of diversity issues within um, Silicon Valley specifically in this conversation. But as Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote about a few years back in The Atlantic, this also relates more broadly um, when we aren't speaking precisely about failure, but more um, the how the stakes of failing and perception do differ based on your identity. Um, he rejects the whole twice as good notion that asks in the example he gave of, you know, how did Jackie Robinson manage to achieve greatness in the face of racism? And Coates is like, no, like we don't need to find exceptions to the rule to like make us feel okay. Rather, the more compelling question is to ask, well, what could we do? What could he have done if racism hadn't Mm -hmm. existed? And because he's such a brilliant writer, um, I would like to quote him directly because I don't want to mangle Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, and, and just for a little bit of background, he was writing this in 2014 after the Academy Awards when Kim Novak, who is uh, an actress from more of the classic era of Hollywood, showed up to the awards ceremony and she had a lot of visible plastic surgery and the Internet, of course, like ripped her apart. And um, it was in- incredibly sexist. So Ta-Nehisi Coates writes, we should probably stop bragging about Jackie Robinson and remember that he died young. We should probably cite Ginger Rogers mostly as damning evidence. And that, of course, is going to the quote of Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but in heels and backwards. And he goes on to say, we comfort ourselves with individuals who get over ignoring the broad masses who necessarily cannot I think we should pause before noting that Sally Field is, quote, aging well. Most of her fellow human females will not. That's because the very notion of aging well is riven with all our notions of who owns their body and who does not. And I know that that seems perhaps tangential to this question of how do we process failure, but I think it's so important for us to realize that there are elements beyond our gender, institutional and socialized elements of uh, really a patriarchy that also contribute to this pattern. What a good point. I think that that's so insightful. Um, and I think it is worth pointing out that um, while it is important to be, you know, gutsy and blow past fear individually to succeed in your own life or, or what have you, um, that that won't end those institutional forces. It's the similar, it's similar to what you hear when you talk about, um, oh, well, you do have a Marissa Meyer who rose to the top or a Sheryl Sandberg or whoever. Um, but that doesn't mean that 
sexism is fixed just because you have a handful of of women leading big departments or big companies. Well, especially when you keep in mind that those examples are white, you know, and not Mm -hmm. to say that it's only white women who are succeeding, but certainly opportunity is differs depending on identities. And to that point, I, I, I would like academia to also catch up um, from our digging that we did. There is scant information on how all of this breaks down when you look at low income kids or single mothers, women of color, people who generally have less room in their lives for risk. I mean, for me personally, growing up in a lower income household feeds 110 percent into my fear of failure in the way that that has influenced my career choices. So as I was reading a lot of this about gender as a woman, I was like, okay, I get you here. But what about this other thing? You know, Mm -hmm. there, there are so many other factors going into that. But in the meantime, there are ways that we can fail better. And we, we can kick off this segment by <laughs> quoting Amy Poehler, perhaps. Yeah, the fabulous Saint Amy says, the question you have to ask yourself is, how do you want to fail? Do you want to fail in a way that feels like it respects your tastes and value system? Now, what, is, what does that mean? So I think Amy Poehler is saying, uh, do you want to have a good fail? Or do you want to pretend that it never existed and probably go nowhere, you know, because it's a very bold choice to fail in a way that respects your taste and value <laughs> system, you know, because that means that you are willing to even go for it. Yeah. And that if something doesn't work out, it's not because um, you made some kind of foolish mistake or you compromised something. It's because you tried. Yeah. And. The fact of life is not everything works out. Yeah. You went after the thing you wanted. Yeah. And did the thing that you wanted to do. And maybe you failed. Sure. But at least you did it <laughs> in your style. Exactly. <laughs> I failed authentically. Thank yes. you very much. That's like the title of a book, I feel like. Authentic failure. It should be if it's not already. Um, but we do have some quick hit tips to offer, starting with uh, Tim Hartford, who is an economist. He also wrote a book called Adapt that's all about this. Um, and some suggestions that Hartford offers for really cultivating better failure is to, first of all, try new things. Give things the college try. Are we sure? Yes. Because you never know until you try. And I I can hear my mother's voice piping up in my head being like, well, with, you know, you don't have to try everything. Okay. (laughs) Within reason. Um, And then you can also experiment with survivable failure to kind of condition yourself for failure when the stakes are not feast or famine. So in my creative life, one thing that has been helpful for me is uh, participating in literary events in Atlanta, where we live, where it forces me to write something and present it in front of an audience, get vulnerable, and nothing is at stake except for my ego. And fair listeners, she is so funny when she does it. Oh, on on purpose, not like no one's <laughs> laughing at her. She's she's truly, truly talented. Thank you. 
Um, well, and that goes to our next point of getting feedback. <laughs> but also taking the harsh feedback and understanding how you can take the venom out, so to speak, because mm-hmm. peeps is harsh. Well, and you don't have to take everything personally. Right. Which right. is which is something that is very hard. It's something that's very hard for me. And it's something that I have to constantly remind myself about. And, um, you know, and, and there's a difference. Like maybe you ask for feedback. So maybe you're more prepared uh, if you receive negative feedback. Um, but if someone just offers unsolicited feedback, um, it can be helpful to try to look at it as genuinely helpful and a way to build future successes rather than just saying, I must be such a failure if they're offering slightly negative feedback. Well, especially because in online comment culture, a lot of the criticism is really personal. So it's an extra challenge to depersonalize personalized criticism. Yeah, that's why. Well, that's why I appreciate so much the thoughtful emails we get when they are offering a correction or a criticism and they are willing to act like humans and take into account that we are also humans and that we're not perfect and that if we mess something up, we didn't do it on purpose. And uh, P.S. listeners, the they in that sentence is you. Oh, well, yes. So thank you. Thank you for being cool. But seriously, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's also a, a phrase from William Faulkner that is super helpful, especially if you are a writer. But Does it have any punctuation in it? <laughs> there is no punctuation. It's just a phrase. Faulknerian. Very Faulknerian. <laughs> um but this can apply to really anything, any project you're working on that you are attached to. And the thing is, you gotta kill your darlings. You can't, you can't be too precious with your work because the more precious you are, the harder it's gonna be to accept constructive criticism, accept that perhaps your work is not perfect. Well, it's part of that fixed mindset stuff. I mean, I totally, I, I very much appreciate the, the motivation behind saying kill your darlings, because if your work or your achievement or your whatever is too precious to you, you won't be open to that feedback and you won't be open then to potentially creating something even greater. Like imagine if Oprah had not been able to rise to being Oprah. I mean, what? we wouldn't have a podcast. (laughs) Really? I wouldn't have a T-shirt coming in the mail. <laughs> um, and through all of this in the background, we need to be fostering self-compassion. It is the whole thing. And, and Amy Poehler, again, St. Amy, talks about this a lot where you, we need to get better about talking to ourselves like we would a friend. And self-talk, y'all, ooh, I can tell you from personal experience again, like it is powerful. And it is also powerful when you choose self-compassion over self-hate. And just say, you know what, what would, what would I be, you know, what would I say to you if you were in the same situation? Exactly. I was looking at my cellulite the other day and I was starting to feel really bad. And I was like, what would I say to my nice, smart friend? I would be like, don't worry about it. You're amazing. Everybody has it. Yeah. I'd be like, it's genetic. Also watch this stuff mom never told you video (laughs) that will break down why it's not a big deal. And it's such a lie that it is. Um, and to go full circle with this episode, uh, I did want to come back around to Gideon Lickfield's quartz piece, where in the process of talking about how failure is so in fashion, he takes issue with it, saying, you know what? True vulnerability is admitting you failed, 
that you're still failing and that it hurts like hell. And being honest about this while you're still in the thick of it is the real triumph because a lot of times when we hear about failures, it's in the context of success, in the context of how these failures got you to success. But when you are knee deep in the middle of it, it, you might not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And we need to be able to acknowledge that, hey, sometimes <laughs> that failure is not going to lead to, you know, your own Oprah network and magazine <laughs> where you are on the cover every single month. God, I love it. <laughs> and that it hurts. And that it's okay that it hurts and that it doesn't make you a less cowardly person. And when all else fails, just remember and buy the shirt if you need it. Oprah wasn't built in a day. No, but what amazing stuff she is built of. And is still building. I know. You know, Oprah's still a work in progress. God and I, knows it. And I, and I think uh, <laughs> Oprah God knows that. Yeah. St. <laughs> Oprah knows it. St. Amy and St. Oprah... You know, if if there is an Oprah God, hopefully you are listening, both of you. Um, and listeners, we want to hear from you about this. Uh, obviously, Caroline and I had a very personal connection with this episode. This this did feel a little bit like therapy. So thanks for talking to me about it, Caroline. Thank you. Um, but I, I do think this is such a such an important issue, um, and it's an important issue if you are a parent or if you are a person or someone growing up, like failure is a part of our day-to-day life and it's nothing to be scared of. And it's taken me a long time to figure that out. But y'all, I tell you what, it can be pretty liberating and exciting. So we want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we have a message to share with you right now. Just one message, because it's a special note that I loved and appreciated, and it is lengthy, so I didn't want to be reading letters for the next three hours. But this is a letter from RJ in response to, sort of, our Phyllis Schlafly episode, but really not focused on Phyllis. She says... Hi, as a newish listener of your show, I have to start by saying that I appreciate so much what the two of you are doing with Sminty. I discovered the show while driving across the state to a work conference, and it was such a breath of fresh air. Listening to Sminty has been a huge comfort to me and helps me feel less alone as a young woman in a much older, male-dominated field. Which is exactly what I'm writing in about today. In your most recent episode on Phyllis Schlafly, I remember Kristen being frustrated at the prospects of ever undoing P. Schlaff's influence, but maybe I can give you a little hope. I'm a 26-year-old woman from Pennsylvania who works in local government. You may have heard of my fictional alter ego, Leslie Nope, heroine to park lovers and young women in politics everywhere. And just to be clear, no, Parks and Rec is not a hyperbole, it's an accurate depiction of my life. Much like Leslie, I'm in an assistant city manager role in a medium-sized suburban community and have a boss that deeply believes in the sacred practice of grilling year-round. Her character did a lot for women interested in public sector careers, but although Parks and Rec chronicled the difficulties of breaking into the old boys club, there is one thing they failed to address more explicitly, the severity of the gender divide in the field of local government. Only 13% of leadership roles in local government are held by women. That's one of the worst industry statistics out there. When you consider this, alongside the fact that the average age of local government employees is three years higher than the national average, 
And actually, one of the professional managers organizations I'm a member of has an average age of 55, more than twice my age. It can seem like a really unwelcoming career for young women. But I'm writing to say that it's so, so important for women to get involved in public careers and help swing back the gender gap. The Atlantic recently published a really interesting piece about how women entering the workforce has negatively affected civic society. And they also give a shout out to Peachlaps herself. Essentially saying that before women were working like the boys, they used to be the driving force behind civic groups that advocated for policy change, volunteered in their communities, worked on campaigns to get out the vote, and so on. So if women are too busy having those darn jobs to make their voices heard in the same way as they did in the early 20th century, and only 13% of us are in management in local government, where exactly are we? And now I'm going to let Kristen finish this letter as if we're reading, too. Oh, wonderful. The good news is that recent graduates of degree programs that lead to public careers, like public administration and urban planning, aren't nearly so lopsided. The bad news is that even when we do get into leadership roles, because of the nature of small individual community offices, we don't have much contact with each other. It can be really isolating and difficult to hang in there for the long haul. And that's where Sminty comes in for me. And don't even get me started on how to navigate planning a family when you're one of a handful of people running an entire town. Fortunately, because many of us are those troublesome millennials that can't ever put down their phones and get off Facebook, something that really baffles at least one speaker at every professional gathering, by the way, (laughs) we're forming networks of young people online at both the regional and national level. Emerging Leaders in Local Government is one of the larger organizations, and they've been doing incredible work putting spotlight on the hashtag 13% problem and how we can solve it. I know local government probably sounds like a really boring field to a lot of people. Technology is sometimes a struggle, and yes, most of our records are still on paper. But it's truly an awesome way to invest in the community and actively make a difference that you can see. I may not be testifying in front of the Senate every day, but if a senior resident calls me because they're no longer able to maintain their home and are afraid they'll have to leave it, there are ways I can help. I get to watch thousands of people come together at our annual autumn festival and also drive them to their parked cars in a golf cart when it's over. Seriously, I wasn't kidding about Leslie Note being my alter ego. Oh, man. And I just hope that you have a little Sebastian Mm -hmm. hanging out at that fall fall festival. Back to the letter. During a time when federal politics are making people feel anxious and alienated, it's a way to connect with residents and still have them feel like they can have a good relationship with their government. That's my spiel. Hopefully I've restored some of your faith that women in government are here, taking back their influence on politics and policy, even if sometimes you don't see us. Oh, RJ, thank you so much for this fantastic letter. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Also, thank you for the reminder that local government matters. And y'all, if you were listening to this before the presidential election, don't forget the down ballot votes. Don't forget. So also don't forget to send us your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about how to fail, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 